0: with ChatGPT, the revolution began and we're now in the middle of it but it's a revolution that will play out at a scale of maybe five to ten years and if you look at previous revolutions like the industrial revolution us having internet it feels like from one year to the next maybe not that much happens but on a 10-year basis the society changes essentially and i think we're seeing something akin to that now and we're in the middle of it <music>
1: Hello and welcome to the DPP podcast. I'm Edward Qualtrough, editorial director here at the DPP and I'm here to introduce to you the first of a two-parter speaking with expert practitioners in artificial intelligence. That was Johanna Bjorklund who is a co-founder and CTO of two media tech industry startups Adlead and Codemill. But also Johanna is an associate professor of theoretical computer science and she has been active in the space for many years. So For this informal exploration of AI, we wanted to hear some calm reflections to cut through some of the latest hype on the subject. In the next part, we will hear from Chief Data and AI Officer at ITV, Sanjeev Mbala. But first, here is DPP CTO, Rowan de Pomerai's short discussion with Johanna.
2: In 2018, the scale of hype around AI was matched only by the extent of the challenges. Those are words that I wrote in a 2021 report from the DPP, Automating Media. And at that time, we also said that the intervening three years had seen significant progress, but that we were somewhat short still of a complete revolution. So I'm here today with Johanna Bjorklund uh, to find out whether we really move forward in the two years since then. Now, Johanna, you are quite the mind in this area. You're an associate professor of theoretical computer science. You've got a computer science PhD. Um, So of anybody we could think of in the DPP membership to explore this with, uh, you were top of our list. And I am completely fascinated to know, with the rise of uh, so much new conversation in the last year or two uh, about AI once again, have we really moved forward? Have we reached that, that revolution that we felt like we hadn't a couple of years ago?
0: Yes, I I actually think that uh, with ChatGPT, the revolution began and we're now in the middle of it. But it's a revolution that will play out at a scale of maybe five to ten years. And if you look at previous like revolutions like the Industrial Revolution, uh, us having internet, it feels like from one year to the next, maybe not that much happens. But from on a ten year basis, the society changes essentially. And I think we're seeing something akin to that now and we're in the middle of it.
2: So what is it that has really changed in the last year or two? Like at a a technical level, has there been a significant shift um, that that has really kind of moved the dial, as it were?
0: I would say, yes, there has been a a technological shift. So we have um, a new type of neural networks that are simply better at disregarding noise. But I would also say that it's a matter of scale. It turned out that these language models that are at the center of it, they needed to be big enough to have certain emergent effects. So when we had small language models then they could solve simple tasks but for them to be able to at least even superficially emulate human intelligence they needed to be quite big mm. and that only happened like last year.
2: And. What is it that's enabled that, that greater scale? Is, is that just to do with the, the continuing research and the advancements mm-hmm. there, or is it, is it that the underlying infrastructure of the cloud and so on has, has only made it possible to have models so big in, in recent years?
0: Yes, that's a, a, I think actually, it, it, maybe we can go back and say, it was the hype that created sufficient investments to build things that were at this scale, because uh, the technology... Okay, the transformers—that is—is fairly new, but it's not super new. But then also the increased access to data—that's also important. And then, I mean, these really big investments in hardware. So I think it's everything coming together. We have we have the data, we have the algorithms, and we have the hardware, and we have the people that are willing to invest in in making this happen. And then it was a fortunate bet.
2: And you talk there about how the hype. Um, has actually helped to fuel the investment. I think that's a really interesting point that I certainly hadn't considered before. Do you think that the the sort of public awareness has made a big difference as well? So like if we look at GPT, you know, GPT-3 had been around for, for quite a while before OpenAI wrapped it up into the chat GPT interface, right? The underlying model wasn't brand new in November last year, but the interface was, and it put it in the hands of millions more people. Do you think that's been a you know, a significant shift
0: towards, uh, you know, moving this technology forward? I think that's a really good question. And it's uh, my short answer is yes. I think that the fact that they made this model available to a crowd of people and these people started to recommend this to their friends and people started to play around with it. And soon we had lots of discoveries of many different ways in which this model could be useful. Of course, that, that helped and that also motivated further investments. So we had a very quick development. But I learned at a previous DPP workshop that when you you try to predict next year's trends, then the winner is almost always like a technical platform that is fairly new, but that has been made available to society or to a broader public so that people can start to build their own solutions on top of it.
1: Mm. And
0: then all of a sudden, something really exciting happens. So I think you're right with the language models, the fact that so many people can start Playing around with them and trying them for different purposes, that has done uh, amazing things.
2: And bringing this to to our own industry, how much breadth of the use of AI do you see in in practical use cases a, across media organizations?
0: And and how new is that? You know, how how long has it been around? I still think that the, the practical applications are being rolled out. I wouldn't say that it it's. Uh, extremely useful to get and that is creating a lot of value. But now people see are seeing that this will happen and there's no going back. And I think that the way in which, which it will happen is that it will, uh, it will just start to speed up a lot of, of manual workflows. Mm-hmm. So you can do like mundane tasks quicker, but also doing things like polishing content or ID generation, for instance, or patching. So I think we will not have like one AI solution, of course, but there will be lots of like AI almost everywhere, just like there's a lot of software almost everywhere. Actually, I think that's
2: a, a, a really great comparison. AI just to, to the concept of software broadly is, is something mm-hmm. that just will start to underpin all sorts of different functions. So just tell us a little bit about um you know the efforts that you've been involved in, because I, you know, mm-hmm. across your your research, but also your your um, you know commercial interests, you've, you've you've had
0: a hand in a few different AI-driven projects, right? Yes, I'm I'm everywhere. So in my my own research, then we're looking at how we can fuse uh, well discrete and, and um, continuous methods. So uh, to try to explain this, so a continuous method is something like a, a neural method, then that you train it from data. And the upside is that it's it's very powerful. I mean, again, it's the, the core of machine learning and AI. The downside is that the system that you get is very unpredictable. So mathematically, you can't give guarantees on how it will behave. Right. Then on the other side, you have traditional software and, and, and like finite state automata that are predictable, but you have to hand code everything. Uh, and that's not good either because you never get the same type of expressive power as you do with neural models. So in my research, we try to marry these two so that you get sort of the expressive power of generative models, but you get the predictability of, of discrete models. Okay, yes. so, so that's if, I, my if research. I were
2: to, to really... Um, kind of oversimplify that so really what we're trying to do is get something that is as responsive and intuitive as chat gpt but without the fear that it's just going to downright lie to you every now and again Does yeah exactly <laughs> we're
0: trying to make controllable language models yeah okay and, uh, and that yeah. must be quite the challenge uh, yes of course but that is why research is so fun because it's so hard and also <laughs> because it uh, attracts so nice people yeah. so that was uh, the research side then i have well, mill and AdLead. Uh, and if we focus on AdLead for the moment, then what we do is contextual advertising. So then we use different types of AI mm. to see what kind of cont- content is published in real time and then categorize this and then match it against our customers who are advertisers, uh, their desired segments. So if mm. someone has an ad relating to Mother's Day, then we try to find Mother's Day related content. And that they we need AI because often the, the type of content we're looking for is not content where they explicitly mention Mother's Day, but rather maybe it's it's uh, about family or, I don't know, gardening or something. Right. So you need this level of abstraction that these new AI systems can, can deliver. Uh, also, we found that AI can be a... a Uh, Like if you have like simple, you wouldn't call them AI based based method, almost simple keyword matching, for instance, Mm. they, you can use an AI based system to just check that these keyword based systems are delivering as you should, and if not raise an alarm. So you can have like a more sophisticated AI system running on top of something that's barely more than a tiny little script. So (laughs) So Mm -hmm. another level of middle management in the company. Essentially, so what I spend a lot of my time on now is something called the Wallenberg Research Arena for Media and Language. And that's a very big initiative in Sweden where we try to bring together researchers that are working on foundational research in AI, but then companies that are working on on media and entertainment applications. Mm. So we get this research into the industry and vice versa. We get data and use cases from the industry. And this is something that I, I like a lot because I get to see a lot of relevant use cases and also understanding how different companies are yeah. approaching AI and almost everyone are.
2: Hmm? And, and are, there, are there particular use cases that you've seen recently out of that that have stood out?
0: Yes. So a, a very common use case is that organizations are trying to get the grips of their unstructured data. Mm. So what you would typically see is that you have either like uh, a language model that you access through the cloud, but more and more you have your own medium-sized language model that you're hosting yourself on-premises. And this language model is interacting with your data, and you have it in a vectorized database, so it's understandable for the language model. And this means that you can query your own data sets using natural language, and it doesn't matter much in what format this data set is. So some can be uh, maybe customer reports, and something can be like uh, PMs from your board meetings, and another thing can be your own web pages. Yep. But by pushing it into the vectorized database, the language model understands it, and then you sort of see what's going on inside your own company. So that's one trend. Mm-hmm. That's really
2: interesting. I was, I was just going to say on that, the one of the topics that got raised at our European Broadcaster Summit this year was a real kind of desire from many of the European broadcasters, especially for transparency and, and, and a better understanding of the data that's being used to train models and so on. So so do you think that kind of customized model trained for an individual organization is is going to be you know, a more prominent use case, a, a way that we can address some of those concerns by giving people these tools to access their own data rather than a generic data set?
0: Uh, Yes, I think for many organizations, it's not an option to upload all the the data to a cloud. And it it goes off to no one knows where because these these big commercial models, they are quite intransparent. So it's hard to know how your data is handled, but rather maybe use like a hierarchy of of models. So maybe for some purposes, you use these like very big cloud-based models. But if it's your own data and it's sensitive, then you take an open model you tune it for your particular use case, and then you use it yourself locally. Yeah. So I'm involved in a Swedish project where we're trying to build well big, high-quality models for for the Scandinavian languages. Mm. And and the idea there is to go for quality over size rather, and then also to to focus a lot on on this tuning. So you have a a smaller model, but it's good at a particular set of tasks, and it's also it's more transparent. You know better what's going on
2: and how big a how big a role do you think media organisations have to play in in the future of this so you know you're talking there about some of your swedish use cases mm. as it, as it happens today i've been in conversation with broadcasters in both belgium and uh, iceland who have both been working on language models for their own local languages because they're not being served by the, the big international um, companies as well as they would like. So do you see more use cases like that where media companies could actually be a driving force in the in development of some of this technology?
0: Yes, I would say when it comes to AI, the industry rather than uh, academia has been the driving force. But I think if we in Europe wants to comp- want to compete, then uh, we need to be built to collaborate. And that in turn means that there needs to be standards so everyone can build their own little pieces of the puzzle. And there, I think big media organizations have a really important role to play to get these actors to talk and also to, again, develop standards so that we Mm. together can build something uh, strong.
2: And of course, media companies have an incredible library of content, right? Uh, And and what we've seen, as, as you've implied here, is that these really good models require a lot of content to train on, don't they?
0: Uh, yes, I think that then there will be a few more revolutions within this uh, these revolutions. So we will have sub-revolutions. Okay. And one revolution is, uh, well, multimodal models, and that are, is already happening. And the important part there is that when we can connect words in a language to objects in another modality, like an image, for instance, because then you can tell a robot to pick up a certain object, or you can tell a car to take left and it it sort of makes sense in a physical environment what that Mm -hmm. word means but to be able to do this we need to have parallel modalities we so we have to have a language description together with another modality Uh, and if we're looking at media companies this would probably be images so we would have video with images and text together and if we had a lot of that kind of training data then we could have models that in a sense has an eternal representation of, of what the words in a language mean when it comes to yeah. the outside environment. So media companies have, have access to really important data, and now they have to decide how they want to license that data.
2: I mean, that that concept of multimodal models is something that I'm hearing come up a lot. So mm-hmm. uh, as you sort of said there, you know, using whether it's text and images or video or audio, but, but different types of input mm-hmm. in, into the same model. Um, you know, I can totally imagine how that would be a step change in terms of the quality of, of what you can achieve. Um, is is there a lot of research going on into that at the moment? Is that is that going to be sort of the next big thing that we see, do you think?
0: Yes. So I think, again, the, the, that I would say is where the, the forefront is. So people are not building bigger language models now, or at least it doesn't seem like that is a promising way forward. The models that we have now, they don't seem to improve much just simply by making them bigger. So what again what people are doing now is that they're looking at adding data, more modalities. So that and it's also it's important for many different use cases. Again, autonomous cars that we have multimodal models. And then one more thing that's happening is that we're equipping models with the ability to to do simulations. So you have a model and then it can call subunits so it can ask one unit to do maybe arithmetics or calculations and another unit to symbolically simulate a scenario and i think this is going to be interesting if we can in a sense teach the models to to fantasize because mm-hmm. what what we ask humans do when we fantasize is that we play out different scenarios in our head and then we choose the one that best fits our purposes so if you can have a language model that can sort of invoke another language model and say like what if this happened And then it does something and then it gets a result back. And is this satisfactory? No. Okay, then we generate a new attempt. We simulate that with another model and then we try again. So this, uh, yeah, I think like having robots that are fantasizing and I'm using this within air quotes, uh, (laughs) that will will also make the the, the technology more powerful.
2: Just coming back to the point you made about the content owners and and, and the, the rich library of content they have and, and needing to think about how to license it and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is one of the hot topics right now, mm-hmm. of course. And and there's been a lot of kickback against some of these large language models that have scraped huge amounts of text from mm-hmm. the internet. Um, I, guess it's, I guess it's harder to scrape huge amounts of video. Much of it is, mm-hmm. is a little harder to access and a little more protected. But, but still, this is going to be a topic that's on... The, the front of the minds of of any media company in this space so you know how how do you see those agreements between content owners and and technologists playing out are there are there best practices starting to emerge for how this stuff works and and are there other challenges that that content owners should be thinking about as well as the ownership of their their content and the models
0: that get generated from it well I know that there are licenses being developed. This is not an area where I'm an expert, but I think that as a content owner, if you have like a, a like a, a steady amount of incoming content, so you build more and more and more content, then I think it's fairly safe that you take a slice of this content and then you allow someone to try to train a model on it and see what happens. Because for these models to stay relevant, I mean, you need to retrain them. Otherwise, they will no longer be current. They will lose mm. their understanding of, of what's happening in the world. Um, there are some, some fun examples when people are interacting with ChatGPT. And ChatGPT refuses to believe that certain movies that were still just being planned when it was train, trained have now been released. <laughs> so it, it, it's still like a few years back. Yep. So I think it's, it's, it's fairly safe to just take a slice of the data, data you have and then you experiment with it. Uh, yes, and then long term, I think you simply have to come up with like, uh, like a value proposition. Like, how much is my data valid, worth to someone that is training these models, and and I mean, what is the worst thing that could happen, uh, mm. and then just do the economic calculation.
2: Do, do you think people have a sufficient understanding of what it means for? a model to to train on content. So what i mean here is you know i've seen a lot of back and forth on the internet about um you know the value that is or isn't extracted when uh, an ai model is trained on a, a broad corpus of content because mm. it's not directly reproducing that content it's not resharing that content directly but it is creating value in 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 training a model mm. that somebody else could monetize do do you feel that you know the the content owners, the, their legal teams and, and 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 the various stakeholders who need to understand this stuff. Do you get the sense they do truly understand it? Or do you think there's just such a new set of concepts that that we don't really have our heads fully wrapped around it yet?
0: I think we are all struggling to to really understand what is fair in this context. Because if I as a human plagiarize for from sufficiently many people, then it's not plagiarism anymore. It's just... Taking in impressions and then distilling this and doing something on my own, uh, I guess the problem is when when you have a model that something that it produces is too close to a particular source or a few sources because then it really is stealing. But this is very difficult to discover. I mean because these models again are so intransparent, so it's hard to know if this is the this artifact that it produced completely new. Uh, or is it just it has basically remembered something verbatim from the training data and is just spitting it out again? And if so, how can we discover if if the artifact that it produced if that can be safely used or is it something mm. that again it's it's not new it's just stolen? Uh, it's a very hard topic.
2: Yeah, big set of challenges yeah. for us all to work through. So looking looking forward a little. Um, mm. Do you do you have a, a sense or an inkling of of the, the sort of the next areas that might emerge in terms of AI capability? You know, if if you look a year or two down the line, what what would you really like to see in terms of AI capability in media?
0: I think again the advent of the multimodal models. So I I use ChatGPT a lot, uh, and something I typically do is that I I do a, a piece of text myself and then I give it to chat GPT and then I say dear ChatGPT, please copy edit this and mm-hmm. then it spits out a version of my text that uh, has much better grammar and is more readable and then I go through it because it always makes it a little bit too bombastic for my taste and then right. I have something that's better than what I wrote and that I can use and it would be really nice to see if similar things can be done for media workflows so you do do the draft, but then you give it to a system and say, okay, just polish this. I mean, do all the little nitty details, make sure that you have the same sort of maybe color tone in the entire production, or maybe that I don't know what, there's a sufficient space between someone has stopped talking and when there's a new clip. So all these little adjustments, I think that is something that we will be seeing. And then of course, summarizing like, please describe to me in two sentences what's happening in this episode. Mm. I think that would also be relevant. Uh, and then also doing uh, like f- filling stuff like, okay, I would like this, this segment to be a little bit longer or I would like to have a little bit broader scene here or I would like to remove this object in the image to have like little edits in the video that I think also will be coming.
2: I look forward to uh, to seeing which of those... Uh, becomes widespread and, and perhaps which other ideas come along that that we haven't thought of. So I'm I'm gonna ask you a, a little bit of a wild card question to to finish off with, which is the part two of this conversation coming in a, a subsequent podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna be talking to Sanjeevan Bala, who's the chief data and AI officer at ITV. Um, so in your role as a researcher, I, I'm intrigued to know, you know, what one question should we ask to Sanjeevan next time that you would really like to hear from uh, from uh, the head of AI at a, at a large broadcaster?
0: Yeah, I would really like to know how he's thinking about data strategy. So uh, how how to make sure that the data that they, they're collecting are useful for machine learning in the future. So what kind of annotations they need, uh, how unified does the format have to be? Like so, so a data strategy for his company and also an IT strategy. So what, what things are, will they be building in-house and what things will they rely uh, on someone else building? And then also, <laughs> there are many questions, but also, I mean, when he thinks about what use cases to prioritize, which he sees are, uh, can be realized in the near future and which he thinks should be left for three or four years into the future.
2: Fantastic. Well, you've just written our next interview for us. Thank you so much, Johanna. Um, It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time.
0: No, it's a pleasure, always.
1: Thank you then to Rowan and thank you to Johanna. Those were some of the calm reflections that we wanted to hear about AI in media from the academic and from the vendor side. And I hope you'll also be able to join us for our discussion with ITV Chief Data and AI Officer Sanjeev Mbala and hear about his role and how one of the biggest broadcasters in Europe is approaching artificial intelligence in media.